We're spending our midsummer here learning about love and relationships from the Song of Solomon. It's a love poem in the Old Testament. Um, and I thought, we'd, let's just pick up right where we left off last week. Let's start in at chapter 3, verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of the merchant? Look, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men of the mighty men of Israel, all equipped with swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh because of alarms by night. King Solomon made himself a palanquin. I had to look that up. What's a palanquin? It's uh, the thing they would carry on their shoulders and then royalty would sit in it while people walked around. There you go. King Solomon made himself a palanquin of the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. Look, O daughters of Zion, at King Solomon, at the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. So here we come here in the midsummer to learn about a godly and romantic love. And who should be carried up on the soldiers' shoulders of an army but the, the least qualified person in the entire Bible to talk about godly love and romance? King Solomon. When he arrives, everyone who knows Old Testament scriptures gives a little shudder. For those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible, let me just give you a short rundown of what's going on here. Solomon, in my mind, is one of the most complicated figures of the Bible. Uh, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30, that he is one of the wisest men who ever lived. He's credited with writing most of the Proverbs, which is a book of the Bible with many wise and excellent sayings, and having the wisdom to have gathered all the ones that he didn't write. He's credited with writing Ecclesiastes, an essay about dealing with some of the difficulties of life, which we have studied many times in this sanctuary, and I'm sure we'll study many times to come. He's, uh, God considered him worthy to build the first temple for Israel, and Israel was at the height of its power and wealth when Solomon was king. And yet, for all this wisdom, Solomon cannot hang on to his own faith. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon breaks God's commandments regarding marriage, and he doesn't just take on a second wife. He takes on 700 second wives and keeps 300 concubines off to the side as well. Uh, most of this he was doing to make treaties with foreign nations or to um, make peace and alliances with wandering tribes. All these wives that come from foreign lands, they bring with them foreign religions. Solomon begins to follow some of these foreign uh, gods, worshiping them. Uh, two of the gods that were brought into his house required human sacrifice. And we don't know about Solomon, but we do know that at least two of his descendants continued to follow these gods and did sacrifice their own infant children on altars of fire to the god Molech. You ask most pastors, will Solomon be in heaven? And you get kind of a hesitant hedging reaction. This is the Solomon who turns out to be the fiancé we've been celebrating as we're reading the Song of Solomon. This whole book, history says, is written by Solomon and about him. What could this raging polygamist, what could this polyamorist have possibly to tell us about godly love? 
Now, some Bible teachers teach that this is a poem from Solomon's first marriage. And so that's the only one of his marriages that wasn't sinful. But there's evidence right here in the text that you don't get that back door. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines. So he's just getting started. And maidens without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the darling of her mother. Now, I want to let you know that uh, a lot of modern, in fact, most modern scholars, most modern scholars now say that this wasn't written by Solomon. It's not even written about Solomon. Uh, The majority interpretation these days is that uh, as the girl is speaking in this poem and celebrating the boy, that she compares him to King Solomon. So King Solomon's carried out by his army and she's basically saying, look at the splendor of the king and all the riches and wives and such that he has and, and, and you're more wondrous than he is. Uh, even this verse that we, just, we have up, uh, their reading of that would be that he, that this is the boy talking now in the poem, and he says, well, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines, but you, my dove, are the only one for me. And all these uh, women in the king's harem, even they look at you and say, wow, she's so beautiful and amazing. Uh, I, don't, I don't hate that interpretation. I can see that. I can see warrant for that in the text. You've just seen an interpretation of that reading there. I do feel like, as we've been studying this, that the the the, the, the boy or the young man being separated is a lot more like a shepherd than a king. So I can go there. So if you want to take that door out of this difficulty we have with King Solomon, I could fully support doing that. Most Bible scholars these days do. However, there are some verses later in the book that I feel recenters the whole poem on Solomon. So I'm not as comfortable. And I don't also want to take the easy way out this morning because it would be a heck of a lot easier on me to get us on into this series. So I thought, why don't we take a few minutes here and let's do the hard version of this. Let's assume that this is about Solomon and it is written by Solomon and we're stuck with this guy And see where that gets us. As soon as I do that, I immediately have a familiar feeling. It's a feeling I've had a lot, especially in this last year during the pandemic. In this last year, it seems that most, nearly all of the celebrity pastors that I grew up listening to and following, and a good helping of the Christian singers whose music inspired me so much, have now been uh, exposed and revealed to be a sexual predator of one stripe or another. And it's made me question, how much stock should I put in all the things that I learned from those folks and from those songs? It makes me question my own judgment. How did I not have the discernment to see who they were and what was going on? It all feels just a little like King Solomon carried up on the shoulders of an army going, oh, this guy. But you know, this isn't just a reality in the spiritual community. I mean, isn't this phenomenon kind of everywhere? My, my wife, a few years ago, got on a radio contest, and she won us some tickets to see Billy Joel. So for free, we get to go down to the Sprint Center and see Billy Joel. So there we are, packed Sprint Center. After his third amazing love song, Billy Joel, through his microphone, says to the entire, entire Sprint Center, why did you all pay to get in here? I'm three times divorced. What the heck do I know? And then he sang us another amazing love song fascinating evening. Um, Pick any artist 
whose movie or song or book has made you exceedingly happy, do you dare ask the question, why didn't it make them exceedingly happy? Why have they not been able to tap into the joy of their own work? To answer this difficult question about life, I'd like to direct us to the Holy Trinity. I mean the Holy Trilogy. I mean the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is a story about a little hobbit named Frodo, and he has to carry this ring of evil uh, in order to destroy it. And this, this ring has the power to possess anyone's mind who tries to carry it. Uh, wizards, elf queens, warrior kings, none of them have the strength to resist the power of this ring. Only little Frodo. And so he carries it. And when he finally gets to the mountain where he is supposed to destroy it, even he can't do it. He falters. It possesses his mind too. The ring in the end is only destroyed by a convenient accident. Sorry, you had 20 years to see it. I am (laughs) sorry. Um, The Lord of the Rings is full of these kind of conveniences. The, The hobbits can't defeat the evil wizard except that a convenient army of talking trees comes and rescues them just in time. Uh, they, they can't defeat the armies of Sauron, except that a convenient army of ghosts owes someone a thousand-year-old favor. They're at the gates of Mordor, surrounded and doomed, but a convenient army of eagles flies up and rescues them. Nobody in Lord of the Rings can fight their own battles, protect themselves, or do anything good. They all get these uh, convenient, last-minute rescues. So why has this been... Um, A classic of English literature for 67 years. Because it's true. Because it's true. J.R.R. Tolkien, a Christian member of the Catholic Church, he said, I have written a Catholic story unintentionally in the first draft, intentionally in the revisions. He was even asked once, why does Frodo falter in the end? Why can't he win the day and here was Tolkien's answer if Frodo can resist the power of the ring in his own power then it undoes what the ring is and it undoes what evil is the strength of Lord of the Rings is that it's a fantasy that feels like a history and it's a history that feels like it could have happened somewhere and that reality that realness goes all the way into its philosophy of good and evil and what good and evil are a philosophy of good and evil, which walk, walks right alongside of what St. Paul wrote to the Romans. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. A little later he says, since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're all helpless. And we can all only be saved in the end if God will send us a rather convenient rescue. But it's not convenient at all, is it really? Because the Son of God has to die on the cross to purchase it. And this is really good news. This is good news because though we tried, we just couldn't get it right. We just couldn't carry that ring, right? We just didn't turn out to be the son or daughter that we wanted to be in our heart. We didn't turn out to be the brother or sister. We didn't turn out to be the spouse. We didn't turn out to be the parent. We didn't turn out to be the friend. 
that we really wanted to be. And just when it seems like we're doomed, we find out, no, that God has come to save us. So back to the Song of Solomon then. When we see that palanquin being carried by the army and the cloud of dust coming up, uh, that lets us say, here comes a sinner. Here comes a sinner just like me. He's wise, but no one's wise enough to resist all the temptations that this world throws at us. Nobody's that wise. If this guy's going to be saved, he's going to need the same Jesus that I need. But what about his teachings? What about his Proverbs? And what about this love poem? Can they be trusted? That, everyone, is a matter of faith. Whether you trust these writings or not is a matter of faith. Here's what I believe. It may not matter to you, but... But I believe the Holy Spirit handed down this poem and these scriptures. And he protected them. I believe that God's Spirit wanted us to have something durable. Something in writing. Something that connects us to the original events. Something that can guide us to Christ. And guide us to the Holy Spirit. And reinforce what the presence of Christ and the Spirit teaches us. And so he gave us these scriptures. And, and even this poem comes from a time when Solomon was acting in wisdom. And knew something about love that we can trust and even teach. Because just like you and I, and me especially right here in this moment. Although we're sinners, sometimes we have a bit of life-giving wisdom to pass on. That's worth being shared. And it's good. Your own parents. They weren't perfect. Some of them were, were pretty awful. But even the worst among them, didn't they have sometimes some nugget of truth, some piece of wisdom that they passed on to you and it upheld you and helped you prosper and it's worth passing on? So did those preachers that I listened to and so did those singers that I listened to. As for all of their sins and all of my sins and all of your sins and all of Solomon's sins, that has to fall under the grace of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. Whether those predatory ministers and artists we've been talking about will be able to repent of what they've done, whether King Solomon will be able to repent of what he's done, that's not something I have to sort out, and it's not something you have to sort out. Will Solomon be in heaven? God knows the answer to that question, and you and I don't have to know that. My own sin and my own relationship with God and my own path to redemption, that occupies all my attention. I just don't have any attention left for anything else. It ought to occupy yours as well. We ought to be too busy to judge others. But these scriptures, I believe they are good. And I believe they're good because they tell us the truth. That God uses people to bring his good plan into the world. And he uses all kinds of people. Kings and, and fishermen. And if you open your heart to God like Solomon did. You can have love and passion and wisdom and things worth passing on. Worth being studied for a long, long time. And if you get off God's path like Solomon did. Things start to get worse and you start going in a wrong direction. And if you stay off the path like Solomon did, 
things get darker and darker and you will finally come to a place where you will sacrifice the things that are most important to you. You'll even sacrifice your own family. You'll even sacrifice the love of God itself. And when that sacrifice happens, it brings a great amount of pain into the world. I mean, let's not forget the victims of all these people we've been talking about and the the healing that they need. Let's not forget the victims of all those priests and pastors and singers. And let's not forget the 700 wives and the 300 concubines of Solomon. None of them had any choice in the matter, not in their culture. I bet very few even wanted to join that sick family. And I wonder if any of them, once they were in it, wanted to stay. That's the truth. And you've seen it in your own life and you've seen it in this story. Some of you have lived it. What makes our faith good is not the good people who've practiced it. What makes our faith good is the good and forgiving God who makes it real and who always tells us the truth, the truth about us, the truth about the world that we live in. And he always makes a way for us to escape the evil that we're in if we want that way out. He always opens a way out. He's opening a way out to you and I right now. God uses people like you and me and King Solomon and his plan, but only God is good. So whenever someone lets you down, or whenever you let someone down, go back to God, and you will be in good and trustworthy hands. The only good and trustworthy hands in the whole universe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that it tells us the truth. We thank you for your spirit who inspires and protects the word. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness for us and that you offer this path of redemption to us. Lord, may we take the way out that you're giving us into a new life. It is the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.